This is Limit Up, the show where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology so that you can take your trading to the next level. All right, we're recording, which means it's another episode of the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. Uh, I'm Jack Pelzer, and I'm joined by Dan Hodgman. How you doing, Dan? Jack, I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm doing well. You got a little uh, tea time this afternoon, so we'll try and get you out in due course. I do. I, I do. I got to gotta hit the links. It's uh, it's actually my mother's birthday, and uh, so we're doing a little family golf afternoon um, out on the course, 75, sunny. It's a perfect day for some golf. Well, that's a good thing to do, Dan. And uh, speaking of good things to do, you guys are all in for a treat with the interview today. Uh, we met with Gary Antonacy, and by met, I mean we had him in our uh, Zoom studio and he's the uh, founder of Portfolio Management Consultants and actually literally wrote the book on a dual momentum trading, which we'll jump all into that there. Uh, Gary was an interesting guest because he comes at things from a really academic background. I mean, I consider myself an okay, like somewhere on the spectrum of the middle of smart guys. I don't <laughs> consider myself dumb, but uh, Gary was uh, way beyond this. They're extremely intelligent, but you know what I think was so great to hear him say is he simplified the whole concept of this dual momentum. It's something I've heard about, didn't really know a ton about, something I think makes complete sense. I mean, it's you trade with that momentum, you go with momentum. And if you look at and the way he looks at these markets, he's constantly adjusting these outlooks on them. And the concept behind it is so intriguing to me. And he's got such an educated background when looking at it that you you really kind of, I don't know, I feel like I trusted him when he was telling me like where these markets are going to go. I did. I definitely felt uh, like he knew what he was talking about, which I, I sometimes have that confidence in myself. Um, and speaking of momentum, that's obviously been the trade for some time in equities, which I think we touched on this episode. But uh, today we had Fed minutes and um, there are a few uh, notes there that kind of got to what I think we've been saying for a while, where, Dan, you'll never guess what they discovered at the Fed. Let's hear it, Jack. What they discovered was that their policies, and get this, they are pumping money to the highest and uh, market cap largest corporations and not helping the smaller companies and small businesses. You know, it's funny. I feel like somewhere, maybe on this podcast or some other places that you can find us talking on Top Step Trader, we have said, how about this? The five biggest companies in the world are taking everything with it. And you look at the Russell that continues to lag and fall behind. Well, yes. And as we saw today, Apple finally hit $2 trillion market cap. Um, probably a little under now, though, because the market's finally broke a little bit. We saw a little bit of that rotation of people uh, dumping a little bit of the uh, NASDAQ and the S&P 500 with the um, Russell just up a little bit as if just the Fed saying it is making people think, hmm. Well, let's see. There's, there's always going to be two reactions after something major like that comes out. First off, you're going to have the emotion and everyone's emotion is going to be in this case, it was sell, sell, sell. Now that things are slowing down, that emotion's kind of dying off. We're going to see a reaction to the emotion. And that's what we're going to see next. And that's going to kind of determine where these markets end up today. 
that's an important thing to remember when trading numbers. The knee-jerk reaction is so often wrong, and uh, you really can't get married to that. I think, you know, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see things rocket back because we are testing all those stops at the highs and just beyond them. And I think people might snap back to, you know, oh, the Fed's just saying, pity. <laughs> let's print some more. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's, let's just push more money into these markets now. The S&Ps are almost making that all-time high mar- watermark. We got to pump something into this to get them up there, right? Well, we got to avoid the uh, dreaded liquidity trap, which we'll do a whole episode on some point. But it's not the <laughs> most efficient uh, market form when you pump in money and it just goes into Apple shares. <laughs> right. Which is now going to be getting the four for one split. So then that pro- that stock's just going to go up and up and up because more people can afford it. And what kills me, I'll, I'll just say this one thing before we get to the interview. They're, they just did a huge <laughs> bond offering. <laughs> so, like, people... Let me just explain this for 30 seconds so that we'll get to the interview with Gary, who could probably explain this better. But uh, Apple did a huge bond offering where the spreads are so compressed in that stuff. So basically, they paid nothing to service it, and then they, they're going to use it to buy back more stock. <laughs> like, okay, Jerome Powell, man, let's figure this out, man. <laughs> you, you're smarter than me. You're like a Gary. Uh, let's figure this out. Right. Well, anyway, uh, Dan, I didn't want to make you uh, miss that tea time we mentioned at the beginning. So without (laughs) further ado, we'll see you guys after. But in the meantime, uh, enjoy our Limit Up interview we did last week with Gary Antonacy. Hi, everybody. We're joined from California today. Uh, Right, Gary? You're somewhere in uh, Roseville. That's near San Jose, right? It's uh, right outside of Sacramento. Oh, Sacramento. Yeah, I'm not great with my uh, Northern California geography. But uh, anyway, the more important thing is that we're joined by Gary Antonacy, who's the founder of Portfolio Management Consultants and uh, noted author of Dual Momentum. Uh, Gary, thanks so much for stopping by today. Sure. My pleasure. Yeah. So, uh, Gary, you were on the podcast in an earlier iteration a little over a year ago. Uh, We probably have some new people out there. So we thought we could start with kind of a little bit about your background and uh, what got you into investing in finance. Well, I started investing in college. My grandfather subscribed to a newsletter called uh, International Harry Schultz Letter. And I was always interested in alternative ways of doing things. And uh, Harry Schultz was certainly alternative. He was living in Switzerland. So one of the things he said was uh, he expected the. Japanese yen to be revalued. So I took my meager savings and went to my local Bank of America and said, uh, give me all the yen you have for my dollars. They thought I was crazy. But about two weeks later, the yen went up 10%. And uh, that kind of intrigued me. So the next recommendation in the letter was to buy this company that nobody in the US had ever heard of till then. It was called Sanyo Electric. So I had to go to a Japanese stockbroker in downtown Los Angeles, he spoke very little English. And I talked him into uh, selling some Sanyo Electric to me. And it went up about 40% uh, before long. So that hooked me. And uh, after that, I thought it was real easy to uh, invest. Little did I know. Yeah, two big winners are uh, quite quite the hook to bring you in. Just wild to reiterate. So you t- you took possession of the physical Japanese currency? I did. <laughs> That's wild. You uh, look both ways, you know, look behind you when you're walking home. 
Yeah, that's that's about it. I I mean, I was a college student. I didn't have much money anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I love stories like that. There's something very uh, well, obviously, this is a dumb thing to say, tactile about people that take you know physical control of things. Well, that's wild. Did you um, continue? Did you eventually go into more you know American stocks or domestic equities, or did you were you kind of hooked on Japan? Uh, no, I, my job right out of college was uh, to work for Merrill Lynch. So uh, I would I scared my office manager to death because I was interested in uh, gold, gold stocks. This was back in the early 70s and uh, stock options. These are also things that people didn't know very much about. So I specialized in those areas and uh, scared the daylights out of him. Yeah. What was it like um, dealing with options back then? Because now we're so used to things being very efficiently priced and it's super easy. You know, we have the computers now and stuff like that. What was, I may be completely wrong. When was uh, Black Shoals developed? Oh, that was, um, I believe the late sixties, early seventies, uh, Black and Shoals were working on it and Merton joined, joined in with them with some refinements. And before that, uh, Thorpe and Kasuf came up with a, a, a rudimentary option pricing model. They didn't, release much of the to the public of what they were doing but they put some of it out and it was used for um warren hedging uh back then and i had an interest in that again it was something unusual so i i studied uh convertible and warren hedging for a while before black shoals ever became popular yeah that had to be kind of the uh, wild west of uh pricing that stuff back then it was uh um, cool. eventually um I had my own option trading operation with market makers on all the option floors and um, people on the floors would walk out there with these sheets having uh, uh, fair values printed on them and they would just try to uh, exploit anomalies. Um, Problem though was with Black and Scholes and even some of the other models is uh, they were fine uh, when you're dealing with at the money type options, but once you get out of the money, uh, they don't uh, adhere to reality that well. I was still using those sheets in the 30-year option <laughs> pit in 2016. Right. <laughs> our software our software we had developed back in uh, 1991 or 92, we had to have custom-built computers just to be able to run our theoreticals. Everyone thought we were our Well, that's what we did. Um, I hired an electrical engineer and uh, bought a mini computer, a PDP, uh, and then some microprocessors, and I... There were no real feeds, so I had a Bunkeremo quote machine put in my office, and we tore it apart and fed the data into a microprocessor and then into a mini computer to get our option values. I think it's amazing. This, truthfully, is not that long ago, and today we can sit here on our computers, our cell phones. Heck, I could even get the stocks quotes real time on my watch. So it's just amazing how technology has changed in such a short amount of time. Sure is. How has it changed for you and how has your approach changed since with the introduction of all this technology? Well, it's made it a lot easier to uh, do research, for one thing. Uh, Before, it was uh, relegated to the realm of academics who had access to the data and uh, high-powered computers. And there was very little being done on the practitioner side of things back, say, in the, the 70s and even 80s. But I gravitated towards it. In the 80s, I put together some hedge funds then, and I knew that 
Uh, there were people who were better traders than I would ever be, like Paul Tudor Jones and Richard Dennis and John Henry and Lewis Bacon. So I just worked with those guys. And I, I ran portfolio optimization uh, algorithms and figured out how to combine them all together and did very well. Uh, after that time, I took a break from uh, investing for a while, uh, but was always looking for some something to do with my own money and to see if something really good would ever show up again. And that's when I came across options about uh, 10 years ago. I uh, dove into the research and I saw that there was some really good potential there, but it wasn't being exploited very well in the marketplace. So that's when I decided to do my own research. And because there was data available and uh, home computers, I could I could do some pretty good uh, research, just like uh, academics used to do uh, and no one else in years, years prior to that. Absolutely. Um, where do you think that some of this um, edge comes from in the options market? Uh, sort of, you know, how do you look at it? I have I, Dan traded options. I was more of a futures spread trader. But just from a larger perspective, what are some of the things that you see that you can take advantage of? Well, I don't think you can take advantage of it as much anymore. When I was doing this back in the 1980s, uh, the markets weren't as efficient with options. But now, uh, there's a lot more processing power. The models are better. You know, uh, the people who do the do best with options are those who are receiving commissions or spreads. You know, from trading. So I don't think the public has really uh, much of a competitive advantage, no matter you know what they come up with. So I, I've stayed away from options for the past 20 years. Now I just focus on. Uh, ETFs and the momentum algorithms that I have. Yeah. I mean, I personally only um, use options for sort of risk management and investment. Um, I, I, I agree with you. I don't think that there's a lot of point to go out there and start trying to uh, day trade options or something. Right. Where we stand right now, it's you're putting on a lot of risk for not always the biggest reward. And you can take these you know, you got to carry these positions and you get hit in that overnight, you know, something volatile can happen in an overnight session, go against you, you know, a massive amount of risk and you try and leg out of that position. And then by the time the market opens at 720 in the morning, you'd be in the money already, but you had a leg out of that position because the risk shook you out. And so it's really, really tough right now. But Dan, didn't you hear that Robinhood's democratizing the markets by letting everyone trade <laughs> options on the phone? <laughs> uh, maybe for another time. But uh, we could talk about that, Dan. But uh, Gary, you started to mention, so you wrote a book and kind of came up with your own theory called, which I am ignorant of, let's say, um, called Dual Momentum. And I think it'd be really cool to learn a little bit about that. And I think the people listening would too. Well, momentum is nothing new. It's basically uh, persistence in performance. And the most common type of momentum is relative strength, which has been known for, for a long time. I, I read about relative strength back in the 60s and 70s. So what happened was, um, it's actually in 1937 that it was uh, studied academically by uh, Cowles and, uh, and Jones. And they saw that stocks that had done well the prior year tended to do well going forward. And uh, nobody paid any attention to it because uh, academics started getting into 
uh, things like the efficient markets, and they didn't think you could get an edge. But after that started uh, showing some uh, gaps, some cracks in the wall, you know, back in uh, early 1970s, a couple of researchers decided to replicate Cowles and Jones' work, and they discovered the same thing, that stocks that had done well during the preceding three to 12 months continued to outperform going forward. Uh, and then other academics jumped on it because this became a big threat to the efficient market hypothesis because momentum was the strongest anomaly out there. And uh, it it really meant the downfall of a strong form of efficient market theory. So they started seeing if they could show that it didn't hold up. And they looked at momentum uh, every which way they could, going forward and backwards in time across different assets. And what they found is it works with everything over all time periods. So uh, that was kind of cool. But there are some issues having to do with stock momentum because when you're applying momentum to stocks, you end up in more volatile stocks that have wider bid-ask spreads. And momentum is a very high turnover strategy. So uh, trading costs and and, uh, price impact have some uh, effect on the returns that, that you might get. Plus, a lot of people when a lot of people start doing something the returns may not hold up there either so uh, i started looking at it a little differently i my first momentum paper looked at how you could apply momentum in different ways to different markets and i found that momentum actually worked best when you applied it to geographically diversified stock indices so that you got rid of some of the individual security risk and volatility and you could just trade ETFs that way. Um, and then there was a research paper by Gexky and Samanoff showing the same thing, going much further back in time. They went back to the year 1800, and they showed that momentum performs best also on geographically diversified stock indices. So that takes care of the relative strength part of it. Now, there's another part of momentum, which is uh, called time series or absolute momentum, which is really trend following. That's how an asset has done compared to itself over the past. So if, let's say, the S&P 500 has been up over the past year, we say it has positive absolute momentum and it should continue to go up because momentum is persistence in performance. And there's been a lot of work now, uh, especially the last 10 years, looking at this form of momentum. Grazerman and, and Kaminsky have a book in which they looked at trend following using a 12-month look back on performance, and they applied it to stocks and everything else all the way back to the beginning of time. So they took the stock market back to the 1600s and other assets back to the 1200s, and they found that trend following in this form of absolute momentum outperformed buy and hold consistently in all markets. So here we have a 200-year history of relative strength momentum and we have you know a history of trend following absolute momentum almost back to the time of genesis so my idea was why not put them both together and that's where dual momentum came up with what i do is i look to see if the trend in stocks has been up or down over uh, different time frames in my book i use a 12 month look back so if the if say the s&p 500 has been up over the past year then we want to be in stocks. And then we have to decide what stocks to be in. 
So to make it easy, I just said, well, there's U.S. stocks and there's non-U.S. stocks. Uh, each make up about half the world market capitalization. So, uh, And there's highly liquid ETFs for both. So I say, okay, which has been, if we're going to be in stocks, which has been stronger over the past 12 months, U.S. stocks or non-U.S. stocks? And that's what I'll be in. And then I reevaluate that every month, uh, both on an absolute and relative momentum basis to decide whether I want to be in stocks or whether, and if I'm going to be in stocks, then which geographic area do I want to be in? If I'm not going to be in stocks, then I go into the safety of short-term intermediate-term bonds. Now, momentum can also be applied to other assets, and I have proprietary models that include other assets along with stocks and bonds, and that include different ways of, of looking at trend and relative strength. So let me ask you this. You, you're reevaluating on a monthly basis. Now, current conditions, market conditions that we're seeing are a little off over the last few months. So when you look back on February going into March, obviously we had that initial break in about mid-February, and then we started to see equity markets look to want to bounce at least slightly. Maybe it was just a little bit of strength in a in a downtrend, but how do you evaluate a move like that that's essentially a once-in-a-decade kind of move? Well, that's challenging, of course. Um, most trend-following methods uh, didn't do very well in uh, February and March, and if they were sensitive enough, then they came back You know, after that. But sometimes you do get whipsawed. That's the price you pay to uh, outperform over the long run and, and to not be facing 50% or greater drawdowns, uh, hopefully. That's, that's the idea here. My objective in putting this together was how can I get uh, really good risk-adjusted returns while avoiding 50% type drawdowns? Now, that was my initial objective. That's the objective I had in writing my book. I have a very simple do-it-yourself approach that people who read my book can go and do. But if you want something that does better than that, I have proprietary models that I license to uh, a few trading advisors and family offices, and they're more consistent. Their objective function is not just minimize extreme drawdown and maximize risk-adjusted return, but it's to achieve consistency over time. So my uh, proprietary models are much more consistent in, in what they've done and the model that I'm using now, uh, which is an enhanced version of what's in my book, shows about a 5% drawdown early in the year. And it's uh, so it, it wasn't that bad compared to other models. Yeah. Are, the, are, the, are these uh, long only strategies? You're either in, so for instance, the stock one, you're either in US equities or international equities, or you're in. Uh, risk-free, like bonds? That's what my public model is. Yes, you're either in stocks or bonds. And uh, my proprietary models have other assets, but it takes more work on that because you don't want to put all your assets, let's say, in gold. But there might be a, a place for gold as part of your portfolio. And there there is in our my proprietary models. Uh, and again, in fixed income area, there's a lot of variety of among fixed income. Uh, so dual momentum works very well uh, in the fixed income market. And in fact, I have a model called dual momentum fixed income that's uh, made over 10%, about 10% a year with uh, less drawdown 
less volatility than intermediate term bonds. So uh, there's a lot of opportunities uh, when you're dealing with momentum. Absolutely. And when you're talking about the non-U.S. stocks, how, how do you diversify that? Or you, do you just do the excluding U.S. equities sort of ETFs that they have? Excluding U.S. Uh, because I, in my proprietary models, because I, I have different things going on, I might be in both simultaneously. Like right now, we're in both U.S. and non-U.S., but my simple uh, public models, you're in one or the other. So it's in the S&P 500 now. So I'm interested, what got you into, you, you talk about writing uh, these research papers. Has this been something you've kind of always done just as part of your jobs along the way? Or uh, like, where are you um, publishing those? Well, I had the idea of being an academic uh, years ago. I applied to the PhD programs at Wharton in Chicago, got into both. But uh, because efficient markets uh, were very popular then, I thought I'd, I'd be kicked out, you know, because I didn't, <laughs> I'd had real world experience with the top traders, you know, in the world. And I knew that, you know, that wasn't, I mean, markets are generally efficient, but they're not always efficient. I, I agree. And I feel like uh, it would throw a lot of cold water on a lot of the University of Chicago economic thoughts uh, to not agree with that, because then... I agree with you, Gary. Uh, markets are mostly efficient, but I think that anybody who looks around and sees things can see that they're not totally efficient in some ideal sense. I mean, look at what happened to Kodak last week or just, just anything. You can find examples every day that it's not acting in what we would think is just an efficient manner. But uh, the momentum, that's a real thing. Well, the reason I like momentum besides the fact that it works better than anything else, is that there's uh, good behavioral reasons why it works. And behavior doesn't change over time because people tend to be uh, myopic. Momentum is fueled by things like anchoring. People are just reluctant to uh, let things go to their fair value right away. And then there's a catch-up process. And uh, they're influenced by recency and representativeness. So trends tend to continue too far. It's those kind of things that are not going to change over time because they're really ingrained in people's DNA. Do you think at this point, I'm thinking about the markets, especially right now, where you have so many of the algos and CTAs are, you know, sometimes we think about them as these extremely sophisticated things, but a lot of them are kind of pure momentum plays. Is that distorting the market at all? It, it, like everyone's going in momentum right now, say in equities. I guess my question for you is kind of, how do you see when that momentum has changed? Like, I'd be curious as to what your thoughts kind of are with what we're seeing right now in that space. Well, uh, they say the markets climb a wall of worry. And uh, that's, that's generally true. People are always thinking that markets are too high, you know, and, uh, but how high is high? So we just enjoy the ride as well as, as long as we can. It's like being on a, on a train and you just stay on the train until a, a, a faster train comes alongside, and then you hop on that. And then when the train stops going in the right direction, then you get off. So that's basically what I do. The, the trick is to be sensitive enough so that you don't give back too much and so that you don't hop on too late. And that's what I spent a lot of my time uh, researching is uh, how do you go about doing it so that you're as adaptive and sensitive as you can be 
and still able to take advantage uh, without getting uh, chopped up and whipsawed too much. And if you look at any of the great traders, like uh, Paul Tudor Jones, Richard Dennis, Jim Simons, these are all people that you know my hedge funds worked with. They all have adapted over time. You know, they're not doing the same things they started out doing uh, because the markets change. The markets do become more efficient over time and you have to change with them. So the advantage of momentum, I think, is that they're inherently adaptive. And if you put them together uh, thoughtfully, then um, they'll help you to adapt as the markets change. So when you're talking about kind of hopping from one train to the next as it slows down, what exactly are some of the key things that you're looking for to make that move, get out of what you're in here in one place and transition somewhere else? Well, it's a matter of um, what else do you have to get into, for one thing. So that's why there's a nice synergy between the uh, absolute and the relative momentum. Because even though two things are going up, well, you may want to be in both, but you certainly want to have more exposure to the one that's going up uh, the fastest. and so you have that, and then you have trend itself. So when something stops going up, then you know that it's it's time to make a change. Maybe you just go into T-bills then, if nothing else is, is going up. So uh, it's, it's all a matter of how you put it together. Uh, last year, there were a couple of advisors who took my idea of dual momentum using stocks and bonds, and they got all excited about um, machine learning to add dozens of different look back periods to my basic model. And they went out and promoted it and did an ETF and all this stuff. But if you're just adding a bunch of look back periods, you have a lot of correlation there. You know, you're basically dealing with uh, the same model or, or variations of the same model. So that's not how you really uh, diversify in the most intelligent way. So what I do with my proprietary models is I include uh, non-correlated assets, and I include uh, different ways of blending together uh, trend and relative strength. Yeah, I think that uh, this could be super helpful. So we deal with a lot of uh, traders and futures traders at our company. And I think one of the hardest things to do is to follow trend. I think there's a psychological aspect that as you see something keeping in one direction that you think it has to break back, you know, I, I, Dan, what would you say about that? I feel like when we see people, I want to say the majority of the time, yeah, probably the majority of the time flaming out of trades is because they're trying to either catch that knife or just get run over by momentum. Absolutely. I think a lot of, well, especially the newer traders, when they get into this, I think there is that desire to be the one to say, Hey, I picked the bottom. I picked the top. Um, where, I think the most common term or uh, phrase said to any new trader after they get hurt is trend is your friend. And I think this, so a lot of traders do, they, they get caught by that knife a few times and uh, finally they start to accept that trend. And that's one of the reasons momentum works as well as it does, because uh, we're exploiting these behavioral biases and other people, you know, are not able to do that. Uh, I have an example right now. In fact, I, I just finished uh, reworking my dual momentum fixed income model, uh, adding uh, additional uh, bond classes to it that I didn't have enough data for in the past. So I had someone interested 
in uh, investing in that model. So uh, he asked me, well, what are my positions going to be? And I tell him, and because it's gone up, you know, more than he expected from bonds to do, he doesn't want to get into it now, you know, which is kind of yeah. crazy. I mean, uh, this is when, you know, you look forward to these opportunities. Uh, they don't come along that often where uh, the trend is really strong in certain areas. So that's where you want to be. Yeah. Absolutely. Every day we're seeing new uh, record low yields, really, in the tenure, it seems right now, everything else. And uh, we've already kind of, the cat's already out of the bag where we've seen that bonds can go negative. So where this stops, it's hard to say. Well, you just have uh, models that can deal with that. That's one of the other advantages of, of having a model-based approach is you don't have to have a lot of anxiety about things. You just follow the rules. And uh, Ed Sakota, who uh, who wrote an endorsement for my book, uh, he, he has a video out there on YouTube. If you Google his name, it's, it's, it's kind of funny, uh, which he has these rules for trading, which uh, I think are, are very useful. And uh, he also tells about how uh, the criteria he uses for something is he'll put the chart against the wall. And if he sees the line going up, then he knows that's something he wants, wants to be in. <laughs> so speaking of rules, that's one of the most common things I think I talk to our traders about is they have these great plans. They've got these great set of rules put in place and they struggle to follow them. What are some of the things to someone that's relatively new out there getting into this that you would say to them about following those rules? Well, the first thing is you have to be convinced that they work. So that's why I encourage people to uh, take their time and study the research. Uh, in my book, I get a give a lot of references and also on my, my blog and web website. Uh, I want people to look at these academic papers, even if they just read the abstract and look at the exhibits, they'll get a sense of what's going on. And once you become convinced that something doesn't just work on a short-term basis, but has proven itself over hundreds of years, then you can have confidence in it and you're more likely to stick with the rules. Because every approach, every model, every trading approach has periods of underperformance with respect to its benchmark. There's no getting around that. And people who aren't grounded in what they're doing will just go from one thing to another and bounce around. And uh, it's really a recipe for failure when you do that. Yeah, being the old jack of all trades, master of none type thing. Right. I've fallen into that trap a couple of times before. <laughs> yeah, I think I and I think there's a an extreme there's gotta be that point because I know there's the confidence in what you have where you're not getting too cocky in what you have. And like you said, there are gonna be times where it's not performing as you would expect it to. And you don't want to keep pushing that envelope if it's not performing right now, kind of step away, cool off. Make those minor adjustments. Don't totally jump from one thing to the next, small tweaks to then get it performing just the way you'd like. Well, the other thing that goes along with that is to keep in mind what the principles are, you know, and make sure that there's a logical basis for whatever you do or whatever you change. You've probably seen it as well as I. All over the internet, there's all this uh, curve fit stuff where people just try to fit the data and then they say, oh, great, I've got something that's, that does really well. Well, if you search long and hard enough, you're going to find a bunch of things like that. But that doesn't mean they're going to hold up. Most of the time, they won't hold up at all. 
So you have to have a logical basis for what you're doing, something that makes sense and that uh, has been replicated and validated. Yeah. And I encourage, you know, we don't have as many guests on the show who have more of an academic background or interest in those sorts of things. But you can learn a lot, even if you don't understand a lot of the crazy mathematical things, just by poking around. And you're right, reading some of the abstracts, you can get the general, you get kind of what their uh, results were in a way without going into it. And that can kind of change the way you think about things. And I think that's a real beneficial thing to do. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, are you going to be working on any new papers soon? Like, can we expect uh, (laughs) sort of the the next album drop, so to speak? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm always working on things. Um, I've uh, just finishing up a report on my uh, dual momentum fixed income model. And uh, I'm trying to uh, help a few advisors uh, become more familiar with my proprietary models because I think they really are something uh, different and uh, unique. Um, I've actually, one of my other interests is, uh, it's a little bit off topic here, but the same approach can be applied to in the sports area. And now that uh, wagering is becoming legal across the country, I've decided to resurrect some quantitative models that I had years ago for figuring out who's going to win different uh, sporting events. That's great. That is amazing. Momentum. Um, we can talk about that for a few seconds. I have a, <laughs> a question. Um, not that, you know, it's legal across the nation yet, but obviously there's the, you know, the, the VIG hurts you more in sports betting. But do you see in general, are the, mar- the markets tend to be a little less efficient because people are more playing with their hearts in sports? Mm-hmm. I see that in because I do the, the political betting markets and stuff like that. And because they have caps on them and uh, various barriers to entry. Uh, there's some real out-of-whack pricing there. Um, and there are professional, we saw that guy in Jeopardy, Jeopardy James was professional better and stuff. So is it kind of true is what I'm saying? Are those markets kind of a little bit more inefficient? Uh, no, if anything, they're they're more efficient because uh, people generally lose money. Only one to 2% actually make money because uh, they don't know what they're doing. They're very ill-informed. And uh, it's difficult, but there are opportunities there because, and what I find so fascinating about it is that many of the same behavioral biases exist. You know, people tend to, people tend to, uh, there's a long, favorite long shot bias. People tend to prefer lottery type wins. Uh, There's also myopia, uh, overconfidence, and these biases apply not just to people who bet on these events, but uh, to the players themselves. Sometimes their motivations will change based on um, what's been going on. So it it all becomes fascinating to me uh, from a behavioral point of view, and it fits in well with uh, the momentum research I've been doing. So I guess the big takeaway is on the momentum that uh, because the Bears sucked last year, they're just going <laughs> to suck more if there is a season this year. Not necessarily. No, <laughs> Well, there's always that tail risk, I guess. Um, so anyway, Gary, thanks so much for stopping by. If people want to uh, find your blog or your book or learn more about you or Dual Momentum, where's a good place for them to uh, check you out? Well, my blog is a good place to start. That's uh, dualmomentum.net. And there's a link to my website and to my book. Uh, you can go to Amazon and find the book. It's uh, Dual Momentum Investing. It's uh, 
one of the uh, best sellers in investing uh, on Amazon. That's great. Awesome. I'll be sure to check that out. Uh, Gary, once again, thanks so much for stopping by. Uh, Times two. Great to have you. Hope to have you back sometime down the road. Thanks. Always great talking to you, uh, Jack and Dan. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, everyone out there, we'll be back uh, right after that blah, blah, blah noise. Howdy, partners, and welcome to the end of the Limit Up podcast. I said the same thing at the beginning. This is the end. Thanks for making it to the end. That's all I wanted to say. A <laughs> uh, few small show notes. Just wanted to remind everyone that um, Top Step Traders just withdrew their millionth dollar, which is a big accomplishment. So we're Amazing. very happy for all of them. Good to all you who got a piece of that. Um, we're running a little campaign on that right now. So check out the website if you want to learn more. Um, in the meantime, Dan, it's Thursday. Are you going to, you're finally allowed to come back to Illinois. Should you choose? They lifted the uh, restrictions on Wisconsin. Yeah. Got no interest. They got too much good going up here. I'm going to stay up here all weekend and, uh, and enjoy some sunshine and, and the boat and maybe a little golf some more. Yeah. I think I'll be doing that too. I'm leaving for the, uh, UP. I've embraced my inner, uh, you know, uh, outdoorsman, outdoorsman, hermit writer thing. I'm going <laughs> to go up to the very end of Michigan and Lake Superior and just drink coffee and stare at the lake. I think I love it up there. I'm up there four or five times every winter. Right on. We'll have to check it out in the winter sometime. But uh, in the meantime, everybody out there, have a wonderful weekend. Just got Friday left and then uh, pushed across the goal line. Try not to think too much about the markets in that time. Spend some time with uh, your friends, your family. Enjoy the weather while we still have it in the Northern Hemisphere. And uh, namaste and trade well. The Limit Up Podcast is produced by Dante32. Futures in Forex trading contain substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.